Hello, I'm Michaela Beffert. I'm Haley Lezak. And I'm Addison Reuter. Welcome to our podcast, Coffee Conversation and Crime. In today's episode, Evan Flames, you will learn about the death of the investor and the lives and secrets it took to its burning grave on the seas of Craig, Alaska. The people of Craig, Alaska's main suspect is not the one who pulled the trigger. He may know something about the crime, as he did have a falling out with the main victim, Mark Colthurst. However, if it was him, he couldn't have been able to get past hundreds of people without getting positively identified right away and to not be mistaken for Mark. But before we go any further into this murder case, here's a shout out from ADT Homeland Security for sponsoring this episode of Coffee, Conversation, and Crime. ADT Security. Protection is our profession. What happened in Craig? In the fall of 1982, the Colthurst family took a little trip before returning to their hometown in Washington. They took Mr. Colthurst's boat called the Investor, which supposedly contained eight passengers. Mark Colthurst, his pregnant wife Irene, and his two kids Kimberly and John, and his crew members, Jerome Keown, Dean Moon, Chris Heyman, and Michael Stewart. At 9.30 p.m. on the night of September 5th, the Colthurst family mysteriously disappeared. The next time they would be seen, there would only be a few remains. This fun, relaxing excursion turned out to be the family's worst nightmare. Sometime in the evening of September 5th, they docked between two boats. After docking, the family went out to dinner to celebrate Mark's birthday. However, not everyone went as the crew members separated from the family. Rumors say that the crew members went to go buy drugs. While the family was at dinner, according to the waitress, there was a dispute between Mark and a peculiar man. Once the Colehurst family came back from dinner, there was a party on one of the boats that the investor was connected to. Even with the rowdy party, no one saw anything that night that led to suspicion, and this was the last time the family and the deckhands were ever seen. The next morning at 6 a.m., a hungover crew member from the party stepped outside to smoke a cigarette. To his surprise, he watched as the investor drifted out to sea. This did not alarm the crew member because he saw a man steering the ship that looked like Mark. He even waved to the man and he waved back. He just thought Mark was going out to hit the waves early to catch some salmon before leaving for Washington to get little Kimberly back to kindergarten. However, the horrific reality is that the investor was not supposed to leave shore that morning. As time passed, people began to worry about the inhabitants of the investor and numerous people even tried to radio the ship, but there was no response. This was not an opportunity murder. As the murderer would have to be meticulous to get the investor to the cove without anyone being suspicious of him. Little would anyone know that he had a 22 caliber shotgun or rifle with him and planned to sink the ship. It is believed that the murderer knew a little about ships because he opened the seacock to sink the ship on the morning of September 6th. However, this plan was not entirely foolproof because when the murderer returned that night, he saw that the boat had not sunk. Since the cove was only a mile away, the suspected murderer rode the investor's skiff back to the mainland to come up with a new plan to sink the investor. Eyewitnesses recount seeing a man going into a store, but no one can recall exactly who the man was. This is astonishing as the population of Craig, Alaska in 1982 was approximately 600 people. After the man had made his purchase from the store, he returned to the investor back on the skiff and finished the job. 
On the morning of September 7th, tragedy struck as people crowded to witness the investor eerily gliding out to sea, engulfed in flames. When I got there, black smoke was coming out of the wheelhouse, but there was nobody on deck. I made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, said Ray Shapley, a witness at the scene. The boiling hot fiberglass boat was almost impossible to be put out. Ship hands all across Craig joined to assist in assuading the flames, but it was useless. After a grueling 42 hours, the fire had finally receded. However, the gore was not over yet. As police officers and Coast Guard members boarded the boat to investigate the culprit of the fire in the days following the incident, they found that gasoline was poured all around the boat and that this was no accident at all. Digging through the debris of the boat, officers uncovered a human skull. Afraid to spark alarm, a small team was assembled to uncover all human remains. The bodies of Mark, Irene, Kimberly, Jerome Keown, and Michael Stewart were found. The body of Mark's son, Johnny, and the body of Dean Moon were never found, and their suspicion around if Chris Hammond's body was uncovered or not. It is believed that the flames from the boat were so intense that they acted as a crematorium and completely incinerated only four-year-old Johnny. What remained of Dean Moon, however, is believed to be a single tooth. Once every victim was accounted for days after September 7, the coroner's report told a new story of their deaths. The autopsy reports suggested that Mr. and Mrs. Colehurst were most likely dead before the fire occurred. Ballistics showed that they were shot in the back of the head, execution style. Additionally, there were also traces of alcohol in their system. Even with this tragic mass murder, the Craig police were not prepared. Most of the police force consisted of a voluntary members and untrained citizens, so no one bothered to fingerprint, not even the skiff that the motorway used as the direct t- transportation. There was no solid evidence on the investor to pin a suspect because it was almost entirely incinerated by the flames. With the little evidence they did have, the police at the time decided to combine all their evidence in one bag. This is critical because by putting all of the evidence in one bag, it becomes contaminated and makes it unusable to DNA trace. Due to this, the only evidence available to police and investigators was the account of unreliable witnesses. As the investigation continued, several eyewitnesses came forward with information from the days leading up to and of the murders. Three men fishing along the coast of Craig claimed that they saw a man riding in from the sea in the skiff of the investor. As a matter of fact, another boat crossed his path, asking about the smoke. One of the passengers, Lee Axemaker, said, I saw the guy in the skiff. He was a cool character. He came up, talked to a few people, made a phone call, and left. Three witnesses claimed that the man was in his 20s, Caucasian, brown blondish hair, sunglasses, a ball cap with a logo, and had a pockmarked complexion. They were referring to the man having deep scars on the skin caused by skin picking and acne scars. A facial composite sketch was drawn of the man and people were warned to keep on the lookout. As word was spread and more people saw the sketch of the unnamed man, people began to see John Peel as the man in the sketch. Soon eyewitnesses came forward claiming that John Peel was in fact buying two 2.5-gallon jugs of gasoline on September 6th, the same day the Kohlhurst family was murdered. Quickly, 
John Peel's name was plastered throughout Craig as the man who killed eight. Of course, John denied these accusations as he claimed to be sleeping during the murders on the night of the 5th and the morning of the 6th. He also stated that he was working on another vessel during the day on September 5th and 6th. Who is John Peel? How did he get involved? As investigators and eager journalists dug deeper into Mark's life before his death, shocking information came to light. Approximately one year before his death, Mark was allegedly caught selling and using marijuana. Around the same time, deckhand John Peel and Mark had a dispute that led to Mark firing Peel. In order to clear his name and keep a clean record, Mark hired customs officer Leroy Fleming to work with Mark and prove that he was in fact a family man and not a drug dealer. Therefore, there are theories that Peel got fired because of his drug and alcohol abuse. A month before the murders, Leeway left the ship due to old age. Then a week before the murders, crewman Roy Tussing had a dispute over a part of the ship that needed to be fixed, and Mark would not properly fix it. In need of a new deckhand, Mark hired Chris Heyman, the son of Mark's friend, to assist in any work on the ship. This led to the police questioning Mark's relationship with the rest of the deckhands on the investor. All four of the deckhands, Chris Heyman, Dean Moon, Jerome Keown, and Michael Stewart, were ages 18 or 19, Caucasian, and had brown or dirty blonde hair. Dean Moon became a standout in the case to how long he had been working for Mark and his relationship with the other crewmates. According to the fishermen in the area, Moon had been a deckhand for Mark for almost three years. He was a high school friend of Jerome Keom and was overall friends with all of the crewmates on the investor. Michael Stewart got the job because he was Mark's cousin. Moon would have known Peel and it was rumored that they were in fact friends or maybe even bought drugs from each other. Now a little message from our sponsors ADT Security. Protection is our profession. ADT Security Company has been operating in the U.S. for 145 years and provides security services to about 6 million residential customers, small businesses, and corporate offices. ADT Essential Packages start at $36.99 a month. Total Protection starts at $42.99 a month, and Premium Protection starts at $52.99 a month. If you'd like to find more information, please go to ADT.com. Thank you again, ADT, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to our podcast, and thanks again to our sponsor, ADT, for protecting millions of people across the globe. Now, let's dive further into the case. Could John actually execute this action? After being accused of the murder, John Peel consented to a voluntary polygraph test to prove his innocence. Police investigator David McNeil asked Peel a series of questions involving his family and childhood to start the test. Before continuing with questions regarding September 5th through the 7th, McNeil gave John the opportunity to leave, but John responded with, I feel it's something I have to do, and he stayed seated. Once the test was completed, results came back that Peel had not passed. There are numerous ways a person can fail the polygraph test, but investigators believe John failed because he wasn't telling the whole truth. This, however, was never directly stated. Dale Gahan, the polygraph analyst, told Peel that he had failed. 
John disagreed and believed that the machine was just not working right. Gahan responded with, Well, I hate to pop you a little bubble, John, but the polygraph does work. There's no question in my mind that you did this thing. The question that I have in my mind is, are you sorry that you got involved? Peel still stated that he had nothing to do with it. After an extended back and forth, which had John Peel pleading for the troopers to believe his proclamations of innocence, Peel let his exhaustion show. This polygraph, however, would not be used in trial because in 1982, it was still in its trial phase. In John Peel's first trial, he was convicted in 1986. This case was based on circumstantial evidence and weak eyewitness accounts. It lasted over six months, and prosecutors believe Peel's motives for the murder were solely based on the fact that he and Mark had a falling out. Peel argued that anything could have set the investor on fire. This trial ended in a hung jury as Judge Thomas Schultz dropped it. Not too long after, the representatives of Craig, Alaska tried to convict John a second time. However, this trial was a little tricky as the representatives were relying on their witnesses. One of the witnesses was John Fundy. He recalled a gunshot, but he was intoxicated at this time. The second witness was a waitress from the restaurant. She claimed she saw Peel disputing with Mark. Suddenly, other witnesses came forward claiming they saw Peel. However, relying solely on eyewitnesses wasn't a solid piece of evidence, and John's attorney pointed out these holes in this point. How do people all of a sudden remember it was Peel? If it was really him, why wouldn't they have identified him as a murderer when they first were questioned? Without any viable evidence that John Peel had committed the crime, Peel decided to create a case of his own. He filed a case against the state and police department in Craig, Alaska, claiming that he had been wrongfully prosecuted for the murder on the investor. After two trials, John was prosecuted as not guilty and received $900,000 from the police and the state as a settlement for his case. However, this did not stop Peel from being prosecuted by the people in Craig. They got the right guy, says former police detective David McNeil. Just because someone is acquitted doesn't mean they're innocent. Just means there's not enough evidence to show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. After successfully winning his case, John Peel seemingly fell off the face of the earth. After extensively searching for any mention of his name across the internet, there is no history of him existing past winning his case. Not even a certificate of death or proof of life. After concluding the investigation, all eyes were on John Peel, and even to this day, police officers, bloggers, citizens, and journalists still theorize that John Peel is responsible for what happened in Craig. However, after digging deeper into this case, we believe that John Peel did not pull the trigger. Mark's sister, Lori, even agreed that John Peel was involved in the case, but not the killer. How could Peel have subdued and killed eight people by himself? How did people not recognize him as the man fleeing the scene of the skiff? John has worked on ships for the majority of his life. Why wouldn't he know how to sink the ship right away? With these questions in mind, they represent only a few holes in the accusation of John Peel. Since there are few viable suspects in this case, there are so many theories surrounding who is the murderer. My theory is that Mark suspected that something bad was going to happen to him. We all have heard about what happens when you get yourself involved in the drug business. He brought his family thinking he was going to be safe, but clearly he was wrong.
personally, I think that a drug kingpin is responsible for the murder on the investor. What if Mark and John were buying drugs from the same guy? When Mark was caught with marijuana, he brought in a customs officer and that made the dealer mad. This is what caused the dispute between Mark and Peel. Then the dealer found Mark and his family and planned their murder and forced John to work with him. This is why John failed the polygraph, because he knows who committed the murder, but he will be killed if he confesses. I think that the crewmates were a part of the murder. What if they could have been working with Peel to get revenge? The reason why I believe the crewmates are a part of this is that Dean Moon's body was never found and there were conspiracies that Chris Heyman's body wasn't found as well. Therefore, they could have easily escaped onto the cove or were the ones on the skiff. In addition, it didn't seem like Mark Colehurst got along with his crew members well, and they aren't really known, so they could easily walk around without being recognized. Now that you have heard our thoughts, who do you think is responsible for the mass murder on Ben Vester? Thank you for listening to our podcast, Coffee, Conversation, and Crime. We We hope hope you'll join join us again. again.